with me in your Bibles to Colossians in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. In the book of Colossians, Paul is um, opposing and even teaching this church against some things that were coming into the church that were um, cancerous to the church, really. Uh, there was this group of people that were, uh, in the, every sense of the word, they saw themselves as holier than thou. They had this special revelation from God. And any time that you meet someone that says, hey, we've heard something special from God and it's new, and it's not in Scripture, uh, you can just know that right away it's bad food, spit it out. You know, because in all reality, um, it, you can eat fruit, but it, it depends on what it's growing in, what the roots were planted in. And if the roots were planted in falsehood, then no truth can grow from it. And so we need to be careful what we take in as spiritual beings, what we eat, just like we're careful about what we eat in our physical diet. So Paul is warning them, but in order to warn them, rather than warning them against him, he points them to Christ. And any biblical apostle, any godly man, instead of pointing you away from the bad stuff, although they will highlight it for you, they'll spend a lot more time talking about the truth and about Jesus Christ and what he did. And so Paul wants them to know um, the real deal so that they can tell when there's a false one. Uh, anybody that will tell you about currency, there are people that, that look at money to see if there's counterfeits being circulated around. And what they would do is instead of training them to look at every dollar bill or hundred dollar bill to, to, find, to know all of the false ones, what you do is you really, really, really get to know the true $100 bill. So when you see a false one, you'll be able to say, hey, this is counterfeit. And so that's what Paul's doing for these Colossian believers. But if you remember with me, in chapter 1, Paul makes the case for the fact that, that Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. He's preeminent in creation. He's first of importance and he's first of influence. And so as he talks to them as Christian believers, he says, just as God is preeminent and Jesus is preeminent in creation, you are new created beings now that you are in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're a new creation is what 2 Corinthians says in chapter 5. You're a new creation in Christ. And if you are a new creation in Christ, then he is to be preeminent in your life just like he is in the creation of the world. And so he is not only made you by himself, but he's made you for himself. And then he is in you, but in you all things consist in him. And so all that to say that Christ is all and he is in all. And if he is in all, then there should be evidences of that in your life. And so as he gets to chapter 3, he moves more to a practical side of living out our faith. He's already preached against uh, these Eastern philosophies and legalism that came from the Jewish individuals who wanted to go back to the law. And then in chapter 3, he goes on to this, um, this illustration that he makes about garments. He talks about putting off the old garment, the garment of the old man, the, the, the fleshly desires and, and the, the fleshly inheritance that we had as sons of Adam, and he says to put on Christ. And so if you think about it like that, I heard a guy talking about this this week. He said, it's not so much to put off the old, to put off the fleshly members and to lay them aside as it is to put off and burn them. 
like a garment that's stained that you can't get the stain out of. And I say that because I was reading Leviticus 13 this morning. Everybody else was too, right? Reading Leviticus 13. But it's that daily Bible reading program we're going through. And, and I was like, oh, the whole weekend is Leviticus 13. And if you're familiar with Leviticus, it's all about trying to tell if somebody's got leprosy or not. Or trying to tell if there's mildew in clothes and how to get rid of it. And it's interesting because if you look at the book of Leviticus... Uh, many of the things that are, were in the Jewish uh, Old Testament law, uh, many hospitals actually down the road after the Dark Ages adopted some of the same practices. They said, how do we deal with mildew in our, in our surgical facility? And they, they go, hey, you know, the Bible kind of talks about that. So they started implying some of these practices. But as I was reading this particular passage in Leviticus, what it said, the questions that the that the devotional writer wrote was, um, how, how are we supposed to deal with leprous garments? And I'm like, who cares? I don't have any. But he says, what is leprosy in the Bible? Well, it's, it's a type of sin. And leprosy, the physical disease, we don't see it as much anymore in our country, but in third world countries, it's still rampant in some places. Leprosy, actually, what it does is it slowly takes over the body, makes it deadened, all the nerves on the outside, to the point that you don't even know you're hurting yourself anymore. You're, you're numb. And then your body, you'll run into things and you'll hurt your, your digits and your toes, and, and parts of your body will start to fall off because they're corrupted by this leprosy. So it's a type of sin because sin, it... it makes us insensitive anymore to the Lord, and it makes us sensitive to the world, and we're callous to the things of the Spirit. And so whether we know it or not, it leads to death because our members start getting hurt by what we're practicing. And so my point is, in, in this passage, he told them, he said, put off the old garment, burn the thing, and put on the new garment. The idea that he says to put off is, is to get rid of it. Throw it in the trash. Don't ever think about it anymore. And to put on Christ. And when you put on Christ, you're putting on these godly character. And so we are a new creation. And he said, but you still have a responsibility to put on these new characteristics of the new creation. To walk in them. To, to make them your practice. And so in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says... Therefore, as the chosen people of God, or many of your Bibles probably say the elect of God, holy and beloved, he says, put on tender mercies. Be sensitive to others. Put on kindness and humility and meekness and patience or long-suffering. He says, bear with one another. Forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Forgive them, the idea is. Verse 14, he says, But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, and you were called to this. I love that. We were called to peace. But then he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But the word for dwell there is not so much just to hang out, but he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And the idea of the word of dwell is actually the idea of an umpire at a baseball game, if you get what I'm saying. So what does an umpire at a baseball game do? He's not really actively playing the game, but he's making the calls. 
So he says, let the word of Christ make the calls in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it have preeminence, the idea is. So he's bringing us back around to this idea of Christ being preeminent in our lives, and that starts with the word of God being absorbed into us like a sponge that just soaks up every bit of moisture, but then it also has an effect on us. See, we can draw near to God with our lips and be far from God in our hearts. And so what we need to do is we need to be sensitive to the Lord in his word. And that's where it starts. That's the beginning. So he says, let the word of Christ make the call in you richly. Let it guide you in all wisdom, in teaching, and in admonishing one another. And then he says, in these ways, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, for many of you, you may think about that and say, well, what's the difference? They're all different kinds of songs. But psalms refer specifically to the book of Psalms. You might call it the, the Psalms of David, although there were many other authors. But the idea is the Psalter, this group of Scripture that was written to the Lord and written for man, and it's just really kind of, in a way, a diary or a journal for men. Men don't do diaries, they do journals. But um, so the idea is you, you see all these people that, that struggled in their faith with God and they had good days and they had bad days and sometimes they wanted God to break their enemy's teeth and some days they were just, Lord, I'm just at the end of myself and I don't know what to do, please help me. And sometimes they were just praising the Lord and jumping around and singing. Man, make known to the Lord the mercies of God. So all these different various feelings and emotions and, and just worship. So he says, let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, in teaching and in admonishing one another. So we all need wisdom. We all need teaching. But we also need to be filled with God's wisdom so that we could admonish one another. And it's not so much to go, you're wrong and you need to change, but along the lines of bearing with one another. And when people ask of us, hey, I need wisdom, to be filled enough with it ourselves that we can pour into them something that they need. We need to be wellsprings as well as tied to the wellspring of life. And then he says in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So back to that. The Psalms are talking about the Psalms. And in hymns, uh, that particular word is to are, are praises to God, which were written by believers. And, you know, we don't have hymn, hymn books. And that's by design in many ways. Uh, number one, I, I, didn't, I wasn't raised on hymns. Number two, I can't play the piano. And you don't want to hear it. Uh, it's going to be bad. And number three, uh, God's still alive and he's still active in the writing of new songs. And so the, the songs that are written to God, about God, the, the ones that give us the ability many times to sing words that we wouldn't even be able to bring to our own minds because we're not linguistically uh, inclined or we're not poets, we get to sing these songs that are really not for a band, but they're for the church. If God inspires somebody to write a song that's something that we can sing in, in a hard day or in a good day, it's something that's written for the church. And so many times we get to sing these songs, whether they're on the radio, we're singing them in unison with the rest of the church worldwide that follows Jesus Christ. So these are songs that are really in the, in the common market. But the idea is they were written and inspired by God, and they were written by believers to God. And then he says spiritual songs. And these are songs that may not sing to God, 
but they sing about God. They, they preach the truth many times to ourselves as we sing them and we're reminded by them, but they preach the truth to all those that would hear us singing them. And I would encourage you, if you've got a, light, lays a, heart, a song on your heart and you're in Walmart, sing that bad boy because the world is singing their song and they're going to crank it into your hearts. They're going to crank it through your ears. And many times, because we're afraid we're going to offend somebody or we, because we don't feel like we're a good singer or whatever else, we don't sing the Word of God. And the Word of God is the, the, it's the absolute truth. If we don't sing it, if we don't speak it, who will? No one. It'll be silent. But the world constantly is producing and pumping up noise and cranking the volume. For instance, I work at U.S. Tool, and we have speakers in every department. And those speakers drive me nuts because I need silence to work. Now, children has changed that about me. We have two children. Uh, and work has changed that about me because I have a speaker about six feet from my head. And some days it's loud and some days it's not so loud. And guess what I get to listen to all day at work? A, a serious radio station called um, Red, White, and Booze. So it's all about America and drinking booze. And there are songs on there if you listen to them. Now, they're not edifying, and, and sometimes I'll come home singing those things. But I'll come home and sing them, and my wife's like, that's a praise song. It is a praise song to beer and alcohol. It's, it's a praise song to people's hope. They're pra- I mean, people praise what they really worship. You know, whether it's how good our children did, and that's not a bad thing. They need praise, but we can worship things other than God. And whatever your master passion is, whatever your song is that flows from your heart, proves what you really worship. And to the people that are, that's their station, and they're just got it all on all the time. I know a lot of the songs now, they are worshiping what gives them hope and peace. And for you and I, our hope and our peace comes from Jesus Christ. And so if we have praises coming from our lips, let them go. Let them flow. You know, let the water gush forth because the rest of the world has a song they're singing that's one that's really not a hope. It's dissipation. It's, it's floundering. And so he says, let the wisdom of God, the word of God, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Singing with grace in your hearts. See, grace is needed for salvation. We know that. You know, we don't deserve to be saved, and yet God saves us by His grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But sometimes we need grace to sing, even though we don't feel like singing. You know that? Sometimes I come to church, and I don't feel like singing. So God has to give us supernatural grace to sing the words that we know are true to remind ourselves and preach the gospel to ourselves once again. So he says, sing with grace in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How can you do something in the name of someone else? We, we think about names and we name our children things and, and many times we have a reason. And, but a lot of the time in our culture, people don't name their children for any other reason than they thought the name sounded cool, or they didn't think they'd mind repeating it one million billion times. You know, we pick names because we're like, you know, my wife and I discussed it, and we named both of our children for reasons, but one of the things we didn't want to do was give them a name that could be shortened to something we didn't like, you know. So we wanted to give them a name that would, like, it couldn't be shortened. Here it is. This is their name. 
You know, my name is technically Michael, but everyone calls me Mike or Mikey or Hey Mingy because no one else has that name. But names meant something in the Old Testament. And so for these um, believers, he says, live, he says, everything you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the name actually speaks to a person's character many times. Or if you're from a family that everyone knows, like you don't want to do anything to put a spot or a blemish on that family name. We represent our families, and people know us because of our name, especially in a small town, right? But what God is saying through the pen of Paul here is, he says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, if you, what you're doing, you know that God doesn't approve of, and it doesn't represent his name correctly, then don't do it. Cody Harbison just a a couple years ago was talking about that. He's, he said, you know, I drive around my truck and I want to do burnouts and I want to race down Main Street and make loud noises with my exhaust I just welded on there. He said, but here's the deal. If I'm driving dad's truck, and it's got that magnetic sign on there that says Harbison tree trimming. He says, I need to act differently because I represent him. People know whose truck it is. And if I'm doing burnouts down Main Street, people remember that and they go, hey, Tony Harbison. That's what they do. That's what they stand for. Now, they all know Cody does all that stuff anyway, you know, because he's a gearhead like me. But the reality is he wants to ride the brand. You know, he wants to represent correctly. And so in the same way, he says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I read something yesterday and it greatly challenged me. And I want you to chew on it because it's going to imply or it might make you feel uncomfortable, or it might seem theologically incorrect. But what this commentator said was, if what you're doing for Jesus you cannot give thanks for, don't do it. If you can't give thanks to God for what he's given you to do, then don't do it. And I thought about that, and I was like, wow, there's a lot of the time where I'll do things that I can't really be thankful for. And because of it, the fruit of it is that God does accomplish something through even my unthankfulness. But many times later, if I'm complaining because I'm not thankful, there's a blemish left on the Lord. It seems like he doesn't take care of his own because I'm discontent. And, and I've heard many people, many times, whether it's people themselves that are doing ministry or their parents that are bitter about their children doing ministry, they're like, they complain about it all the time. And because of that, it, there's, there's actually an aroma of guilt and shame and there's an aroma of unthankfulness. And it, and it shows that uh, many times that they're doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, and many times uh, there are things that I begrudge, and because I begrudge them when I'm doing them, it doesn't put off the aroma of Christ. It puts off the aroma of bitterness and joyless. And, and, and nobody wants to follow Jesus if that's what they think it's going to be like for them. You know, so we need to be careful that we do things with thankfulness in our heart. If we don't do them with thankfulness in our heart, it actually can do more harm than good. And at the same time, if God's given you something to do, and you are convinced of it. Pray that the Lord would change your heart and give you thankfulness. Being content with things in your life is an important thing. What does Psalm 23 say? It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. In other words, he's made me content like a sheep that's in the right spot at the right time and just eating and being thankful. 
And so we, as his sheep, need to be thankful. So, as he said this, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing with one another. Verse 17, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, that all sounds well and good, but what does that mean for me? How, how, how do I do everything that I do in word or in deed in the name of the Lord Jesus? So, he gets specific, and I like this about Paul. He talks about the theological reasons. He gives a case for God needing to be preeminent, and he really is preeminent. And he gives the case for the fact that he is worthy of worship with our lives. But many people that are not from a church background might read this and go, well, that's great. So he's talking about mission trips, and if you're a pastor, and if you're a worship leader, and if you serve in the church, and all these things that are all about church. Because we think about church, we think about a location, we think about Sunday service. But what Paul's getting ready to do is take that idea and just explode it. He's going to go, okay, everything that you do, do it as unto the Lord, with thankfulness, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then he goes to verse 18 and he says, this is a fun one to teach, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He speaks to wives. I'm going to go through them, and then we'll discuss them more uh, specifically. He says, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter towards them. And I like what the New Living Translation says, Don't treat them harshly. Verse 20, he says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged and implied, quit trying, you know. And actually, in that verse, fathers could be translated parents. So it's not just about dad, but parents do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged and quit trying. Verse 22, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. And whatever you do, he's saying again for emphasis, whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. So he gets very specific. And why does he get specific? Because he's speaking to people, not ideologies. He's not speaking in in vague generalities. He's going to go, okay, here's where the rubber meets the road. He says, if you want to know how to live to the Lord, if you are a wife, if you are a husband, if you are children, if you are fathers, if you are a servant. The word there for servant, bondservant, is not, it it means slave. If you are an indentured servant to someone that is your master, he says, and then he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he speaks to all these relationships that he knows are in the Colossian church. So why does he do this? Because many times people that go to church have these ideas about how to serve God, and and they think about it. You know, I've been on mission trips before, and it's so, I wouldn't say it's easy to live for the Lord, but it's obvious what the will of God is. If you're going to do a VBS in a foreign country, then you're talking to them about Jesus and you're loving on them and you're sharing things with them and they're asking you questions about Michael Jackson. 
you know, and then you bring it back to Jesus and, and all these things. But, but the idea is when you're on a mission trip, it's obvious. I'm living for the Lord. But then you come home and you go back to your job and you're like, how can these things be about Jesus at all? Like, can't we just lock up in a shelter and live in a commune and just praise the Lord all day and read our Bibles and be super spiritual? Because remember, this group of people has come into them and said, to be sp- super spiritual, you got to do X, Y, and Z. And never talking about family relationships. Actually, some of them, the ascetic side of them, were saying, you need to put off those worldly relationships and just spend time with God. Well, if that is the case, if God's called us to separate ourselves from our communities, our families, our workplaces, and just live as hermits and worship Him, then no one else is ever going to hear the gospel. So that can't be the case. That seems to contradict the command to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to do all the things that I've commanded you, Jesus said. So if that's the case, we have to be intertwined with other people's lives, and that is messy and jacked up and hard. And so he says, here, let's simplify it. Is Paul coming up with this list of things that wives and husbands and servants are supposed to do? No. He's actually just referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to the law. Now that your heart's been changed, Paul says, live out the law. No longer because you have to to be saved. No longer because you have to to be more holy. Now we get to do it because we get to. Now that your heart has been transformed by the renewing of your mind, now that you have known how much God desperately loves you and has gone to the ends of the earth to save you and to provide redemption and salvation and cleansing from your sins, and He's purified your life, how should we respond? Well, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, This is what Paul wrote. He said this, I beseech you, therefore, or I beg of you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Give your will over to your God. Let Him transform your will and conform to Him. Do what He says. And so He says, if you want to be super spiritual, just obey and trust the Lord that His ways are higher than ours and they are the best. So He says to wives, I don't believe He wrote to wives because they had the big problem. I think He just started with ladies first. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Don't treat them harshly. He's writing these two things, and this relationship is paramount in the life of a believer. Why? Because in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that the mystery of godliness is shown in the relationship between a husband and a wife. The husband being a picture of Christ the wife being a picture of the bride of Christ, the church. So as he speaks, and I'm going to read Ephesians 5, verse 18, I think is where, no, verse 22, he's speaking about the relationship between a husband and a wife, but he's speaking about the fact that the relationship between the husband and the wife actually reveal a relationship that is more than just a relationship here on earth. 
Remember, we already read in Ephesians or in Colossians 3, he says, he says, seek the things that are above, not on earth below. Don't think about things from a worldly perspective. Think about how they really are supposed to be according to God's perspective, what their purpose was for. So in the marriage, we see the bride of Christ and we see the, the, the husband of the church, Jesus. So in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, he writes the same thing. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as is Christ is also head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands, be to their own husbands in everything. Now, he says, submit to your own husbands. He doesn't give a condition other than as it is fitting in the Lord. So if your husband says you can't worship God anymore and you can't serve the Lord, well, you don't have to submit to him in that because God has called us as believers to worship him first. But we can do it in humility. And actually, Paul writes in Corinthians that some women, by their conduct, by their godly conduct amongst their husband and by the way that they are chaste and pure and by the way that they, they actually serve their husbands in humility and submit to them in the ways that they can, they might win them to the faith. And how cool is that? You know, it could be a witness in the way that you submit to your husband. Or the word submit there doesn't mean to be under his thumb, jammed into the, the cloth of the couch, but it means to be uh, under authority, like a, a foot soldier is under the authority of a general. Two men, perhaps in many cases the same age, and yet one is under the authority of the other just because of the structure and the way that the army is run. And so in the same way, God has order set forth in the body of Christ on how we are to act and interact with one another. So he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And then he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. In other words, if they are not submitting to you, husbands, that doesn't matter. He says, don't be bitter about it. Don't withhold from them. And, you know, it, in many cases, what men do is they... They say, you know what? She doesn't respect me, so I'm not talking to her. And so he doesn't love his wife because she's not giving him what he wants. And so it's like this, it takes two to tango. So he doesn't say, wives, wish that your husbands would love you. And it doesn't say, husbands, wish that your wives would submit to you. Because there's no contentment in that. There's only contention. What it does is it gives each individual party something to do. And it's not conditional upon the other party doing their part. Does that make sense? So, wives, submit to your husbands, whether they love you or not, like you think you should be, or like you should be, like you deserve. And husbands, love your wives, whether or not they submit to you. Because if we'll each do our own part many times, if husbands will love their wives, their wives would gladly submit to them. They, they feel protected. They feel provided for. In many cases, those are the two things we focus on, but that's not what they desire. Most of all, they just want to be loved and cherished. They, they want to feel secure in your love. So husbands, love your wives. Like Christ loved the church, that's the goal. How did Christ love the church? Sacrificially, if you look at Ephesians 5. Unselfishly. And if you look around at our culture, in the church, I'm not talking about the world. The world's going to do what it does. But if you look at Christian men, they're not loving their wives like Christ loves the church. 
Matter of fact, many times they give themselves the pass and they love themselves. And they neglect the family. They love their jobs. They, they pour themselves into it and then they come home they have nothing left. Be careful. God doesn't command us to provide for our families. He's going to provide for them. He commands us to love our wives. Then he goes on, verse 20. Uh, well, one reference in, in verse uh, 19 is 1 Peter 3, 7. And this is one that always sobers me as a husband and kind of scares me a little bit. 1 Peter uh, 3, 7. He says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wife with understanding giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. And he says, do all these things that your prayers may not be hindered. God doesn't want to listen to you if you're not loving your wife. So just a little bit of warning for you husbands. So, verse 20, children. He says, obey your parents in all things. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. I kind of wish I could go back to the children phase, being a child. Now, I am a child still. I still have parents, but I kind of wish I could go back to the early stages and learn to obey them and to do it respectfully and to do it uh, to honor them. Uh, I'm trying to do a lot of that over now later in life, but I love what Ephesians chapter 6 verse 2 says about this. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. That's a promise that God makes to children who will obey their parents. And I say this as knowing one particular example of a young girl that had a, a dad. Um, he, he passed away now and, and he, he loved the Lord, but he was a very fearful parent. He was a, he's a helicopter parent. That's what we call him nowadays. And he was always afraid that his daughter would get hurt. And so when it came to doing things that were outside of the norm, he was always nervous about signing permission slips and, and about letting her do things. And um, I, I just, over and over, I just pray for them because I, I, I didn't want this child to be pushed away from the Lord because her parent was just greatly afraid that something would go wrong and wouldn't let him do anything. But what was interesting about it is one night I talked to her about it and not bringing up the whole thing, but just saying, hey, how you doing? You know, I heard you can't do this, but uh, we'll, we'll be thinking about you while we're doing it. And uh, she said, you know, it doesn't make me happy that I don't get to go to camp. She wasn't going to get to go to summer camp because of the fearful dad. And, and she said, but, you know, he's my dad and I respect him and I'm supposed to honor him and obey him. So I'm going to do that. And she never complained once. And I was like, that was powerful. Because kids these days in the church do not respect their, their parents. Uh, kids outside of the church don't either. But man, what a testimony it is when you see a young person that's willing to submit to the authority that God has placed over them. She was doing it as unto the fear of the Lord. She let the word of God dwell in her so deeply that she was willing to obey it rather than her own desire which was probably a big desire to go to camp and hang out with her friends for a weekend. And how much can we learn from that childlike faith? Then he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged and quit trying. Fathers, many times, and parents many times, I know we fall into this camp, we get into the no groove, like 
don't do that. You know, we got a three-year-old and we got a almost, no, an over one-year-old, a one-year-old. You know, we're past the phase of saying like 872 months old. You know, like we're at the phase of, okay, it's one and two months, but you always feel like you got to say the months because you're so used to it. Anyway, well, you guys know what I'm talking about. But what, what, what he says is fathers or parents, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Does that mean we're not supposed to discipline our children? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is in our discipline, do it lovingly. Do it in a way where they can redeem themselves. I've seen parents many times, and I've been the parent, where I've set a goal, the child doesn't meet it, and so she gets in trouble. And, and many times, that, that's true, it needs, there needs to be consequences for sin, okay? But many times she'll do right. And so I need to balance the consequences and discipline with encouragement and praise. Many times children stop trying to obey their parents because if I do wrong, I get in trouble, and if I do right, nothing. What does it matter? I may as well just disobey and do what I want to do because there's no positive if I do right. There's no reward. Now, what Paul writes here is that we need to do it as unto the Lord, not unto men, because our reward really for obeying in any relationship is not whether or not the other person responds correctly. Our reward is that the Lord is pleased and will have an eternal reward. He'll reward us for being faithful and obedient to His Word. I love that because obeying God's Word in this life, uh, there's not a whole lot of rewards for it. But what does Jesus say? He says, don't, don't build up your treasures here on earth, but in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy. And I believe that by obedience, simple trust and obedience, like children, we are storing up for us ourselves rewards in heaven that we can't even fathom right now. And for children, they have to learn that through, our, through their parents. We need to teach them that there is a reward for obedience and there are consequences for disobedience so that one day when they, it's no longer about a relationship between parents and children, but the children are sent out of the nest and they're learning to follow the Lord and to obey His commands like they did their earthly parents, hopefully. They're, they're really being trained up to, to have a relationship with God, their Heavenly Father. So, he says in verse 22, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does not who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Again, consequences for disobedience. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Think about it. Bondservants. These are people that, that cannot provide for themselves, and so what God did in the Old Testament is he set up, so if you got into debt, you could actually, instead of paying back the debt, you could give your life over to this person as a servant, as a slave, and they would own you for a time. Now there were rules that you could be set free after so many years, but if after so many years you had paid your debt back to them through serving them, and you, you were like, hey, my life is way better serving this person that owns me than it ever was when I was in the world and I had to provide for myself. So I want to be their, no longer their slave, but their bond slave. 
I want to choose to be here, not because I owe them anything, but just because it's so great. And so they would choose to live in their master's house. And they would tell their master, I, I, I have it way better here. I, w- I want to serve you for the rest of my life. And so the master would say, are you sure? <laughs> Is that your final answer? And they would say yes. And they would go to the doorpost of the house, put their ear there, and they would take an awl, put a hole there, and then they would put a gold ring. Anybody that had this gold ring on, you knew that they were a bond slave. There was an outward sign that they had chosen to inwardly serve this person for the rest of their life. Many times Paul writes in his letters, he says, I, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's how he saw himself, as this free will slave. And so in the same way, he tells them, slaves. Why is he talking to slaves? Well, in this empire at the time, most of the church, if it reflected the culture at all, were actually slaves and not free men. Most of them, like I'm going to give a percentage, but it's just kind of off the hip. But it's like 60 to 90 percent of the culture was slaves. So as he's writing to these people, most of them, they're free in Christ, but they still have an obligation on earth. And that obligation is something that they've set their mind to. And they're doing it. They're owned by their master. So how do they, in Christ, live out the gospel? How do they obey the Lord? And so what he writes there is he says, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Obey them. He doesn't give a condition. He says, don't do it with eye service. Don't just do it when they're looking. Now, I've been guilty of this many, many times. You know, you're sitting there. A little thought comes across your mind. I work at a desk, so I'm like, I need to Google that. And then I'm not working anymore, but I'm still getting paid for work. And, I'm, and then I'm like, oh gosh, that's the boss. I hear his shoes because I know his shoes sound. You know, and he comes in and I'm like, oh, and then I close the window real quick. Well, that's serving the Lord uh, or the, your earthly master with eye service. When he's looking, you're doing everything right. Oh, busy, strong, you know, doing it all, everything right, you know. But, you know, that's, that's not the Lord's command. He says, don't just, he's not looking. You're right, your boss can't always look, but I am. Who do you want to impress, me or your boss? I don't want to impress the Lord. I just want to obey him. I want to make him happy. I want to please him. That's my reasonable service. So he says, don't just obey when they're looking. He says, as men pleasers. And I like what uh, someone prayed this morning about uh, pleasing men. And in Proverbs chapter 28, I believe. Hmm. 29. Cannot find it. It's one of those chapters, but it says, The fear of the Lord brings a snare, but those who fear, excuse me, the fear of men brings a snare, but those who fear the Lord will always be safe. And so, uh, not as men pleasers, but as those who fear the Lord in sincerity of heart, fearing God above all. He says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid. There's still consequences. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he speaks also to those that have the slaves. And he says this, he says, treat them fairly. Give them their just wage. Don't rob from them. 
Uh, and actually, I love that because in James chapter 5, we just studied that a couple of weeks ago. Last rabbit trail, I promise. <laughs> I've promised that before. James chapter 5, it's right after Hebrews. I'm telling myself, not you guys. James chapter 5. He says this in James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Heaping up treasure and being a steward over what God's provided for you. But here's the problem. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, those who work for you, which you kept back by fraud, you didn't pay them, those wages cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Seboeth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. He says, basically, be patient because your masters have cheated you, but I hear about it and I will have the final word on it. There will be consequences for those masters that enslave people and don't pay them their due. So, what do we take from all of this? Well, I want to, just a cultural note. The slaves in that day weren't like just people that were working fields and doing simple labor jobs. In many cases, uh, did you know that actually Luke, Dr. Luke, was a slave? He was, he was a, before Christ, and he may have later in life, but he was, he was owned by someone as a doctor. And he was their doctor, like dedicated to serving that one person and his family. And in many, many cases, the slaves were actually those that taught the children all the way up till they went out to school. They would, they would teach them. And so it, it was important that the slaves or the bond slaves would actually serve their masters correctly and receive them from them the payment that they were due because they played a huge role in society. And so what do we take from all of this? What I take from all of this is that what God wants us to do first and foremost is to be completely enriched with His Word. But He doesn't just want us to know His Word. He wants us to react to it and do it. And can you imagine if all these relationships that were just described here were lived out to their fullest potential in obedience to the Lord, what a testimony it would be to the God that we serve in our society. If we just simply started to obey some of this, our relationships would look dynamically different than the rest of the world. They, there wouldn't be as much disunity in the home, which I believe is the single-cell organism within society. I believe our society is breaking down because families aren't simply serving one another and loving one another. It's just something that they do before they go to work. But what God wants us to do in our relationships is redeem the time. To use these relationships as a way to not only grow in our faith in the Lord and obey Him, but also it preaches the gospel to the rest of the world. That God not only saves our individual souls, but He redeems and saves and blossoms our individual families. He makes us better workers. He makes us better spouses. He makes us better children. Not just for the sake of being better, but to show that God cleans the fish that He catches. 
he caught us. He captures our hearts. And then he transforms us and he makes us so utterly different than the world that you cannot help but see the character of Jesus Christ and those who follow him. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to